Tommaso. So today we, we move from the meditative cultivation of loving-kindness to the second of the four measurables, compassion. And I do believe there's a very, very meaningful sequence or meaning to the sequence uh, among these four measurables. And the first one, this cultivation of loving-kindness, is really type, type a kind of expedition into loving-kindness. Some of you may know expedition is also one of my favorite terms. And that is exped. An expedition is to get your feet out, to get your feet unstuck out of old ruts, out of old grinds, out of old limitations. So an expedition is venturing off into new territory. It's very easy, just in the course of an ordinary way of life, to get stuck, to have a very limited sense of one's own potential, possibilities. And of course, there's massive reinforcement from all sides. Not to expect too much of yourself. Not in terms of your inner, maybe your intelligence, yeah, memory, some cognitive faculties. Yeah, you can exercise those. But in terms of qualities deeper, deeper qualities of the heart, qualities of Buddha nature, well, there's not a whole lot of encouragement there's a lot of encouragement to be satisfied with mediocrity, to be really blunt. Don't expect too much. After all, you're only human. You're just an animal. And it's brain chemistry, it's genetics, it's conditioning, it's all kinds of things. So don't get your hopes up because, you know, you're just human. Whereas do, so there's one message, but then in terms of the external, do get your hopes up. You too could be rich. You too could have a new car, a better car. You too could be happier by getting the right thing that money can buy and never be satisfied because the sky's the limit. You too could be a billionaire. Just try hard. So we're encouraged to accept utter mediocrity within and be absolutely unsatiated in terms of our outwardly directed pursuit of happiness. And of course, when people do that, it's enormously profitable for them. There's not much profit in encouraging people to go inwards. Because then they become independent. They become self-reliant. They become self-confident. They become self-assured. They wind up being content. And it's really hard to sell things to people who are content. So loving kindness is an expedition to get out of a rut to go against the grain, go against the common assumptions, go against the idealization of mediocrity. And to consider a radical reversal from the utter prioritization of hedonic well-being with hardly even a hint that there might be such thing as eudaimonic well-being, genuine happiness. Hardly, hardly even a hint and to turn that entirely around. Primary prioritization on genuine happiness and all of the hedonic well-being is to serve that. It's not trivial, but all of the hedonic well-being, having good health, having shelter, having, if you need transportation, having a car, having internet. If you need internet, we need, nowadays we need internet. A lot of people, I do. So, but getting what is sufficient, getting what is sufficient, and then once, as soon as it's sufficient, then applying that to the meaning of life. So loving-kindness is really an expedition into the realm of possibility.
and by attending to it, transforming possibility into actuality, by imagining it. So we speak of two qualities of awareness, the cognitive quality of just being aware of, ascertaining, knowing, but also consciousness illuminates. It illuminates. And that illumination, in that illuminous quality of awareness, that's where the creativity of consciousness lies. Because one of the most obvious manifestations of the luminosity of awareness is a dream where you've created a whole world. You, that is to say, consciousness, which is to say, out of the substrate, this ocean of potential of the substrate, the space of the mind, arises a world that is so real you think you're awake. And it's not just a snapshot. It's a world in motion. It's got stories. It's got drama. It's got emotions hopes and fears, all kinds of things. And it's all your own creation. It's amazing. And that's all sheer a display of the luminosity of awareness. The luminosity is projected out into the 3D virtual reality field of the substrate. And it's illuminated by the substrate consciousness. But the domain, the place where that whole world appears is the substrate. So the luminosity of awareness is the very nature of the creativity of awareness. And so in the cultivation of loving kindness, we move into that realm. As William James said, you'll hear this more than once from me, for the moment what we attend to is reality. For the moment what we attend to is reality. If a man falls in love with a woman, not sure whether he likes her or not, whether, not sure whether she likes him or not, he may start imagining, right? Maybe she'll like me. Maybe she'll love me. Maybe we can get together. And maybe we could be really happy. And wouldn't that be wonderful? Starts to attend closely. Maybe she doesn't even know he exists. <laughs> so it's an entirely realm of possibility, right? But he attends to it. And he thinks, oh, may it be, he's really in love. May it be, may it be. And by attending to it, then some motion is there to turn that possibility into reality. Now, the woman has some say herself. <laughs> and so his visionary expedition may hit a big brick wall. Then it's back to the realm of reality. <laughs> Actuality. But for a little while, it can be moving into the realm of possibility until reality says, uh-uh. Then you say, okay, then set off on another expedition. Maybe I could be happy even without that woman, this person, without that car, without this job, without... Maybe I... There's another kind of expedition that's not hedonic, not reliant upon something outside. Another type of expedition. That's where loving kindness, the arousal, the cultivation of loving kindness starts to get wise. You don't need to be wise to fall in love. You don't need to be wise to want to get rich, famous accepted, loved by other people. You don't have to be wise. Anybody can do that. But you have to be a bit wise to envision your own well-being, your own genuine happiness, and to identify what are the causes of such happiness. That takes some wisdom. And the Buddha said, compassion, loving kindness, without wisdom is bondage. Just as wisdom without compassion is bondage. So we need the two together. So in short, the cultivation of loving-kindness is an expedition 
venturing forth, hopefully with as much wisdom as possible, into the realm of possibility, attending to it, making it real by attending to it. Certainly the feelings, the emotions that are aroused are real, even if one is attending only to a virtual reality. They're, they're already real. So that's, that's something real. That can't be taken away by another person, because that's coming from within. Right? But as loving-kindness ventures into the realm of possibility, then sooner or later you come out of your meditation. Sooner or later you come back to the realm of actuality. Now, I don't equate the realm of actuality with the realm of reality. That's extremely limited. Devastating, cripplingly, cripplingly limited. If you think the real is only what is already actual, because then you are bound only to repeat the past. When we say, oh, I can never have a lucid dream. Oh, I, I never this, I never that. We reinforce that is based upon our previous limitations. When we say, oh, I can, I, I can never stabilize my mind. I can, I can never really relax. Uh, I can never, never. And so when it's taking an actuality and then superimposing, projecting that actuality of the past onto the future, and then... There is no realm of possibility because it's just actuality. And so it's like, I love, love this image. Imagine going out into the Sahara, this vast, vast desert, right? With some heavy materials with you, bars. You go out into the middle of the Sahara where nobody knows where you are and you build yourself a metal cage with a big lock. And you build it very carefully, strong. Like even if you cage an elephant, the elephant couldn't get out. And then when it's, once it's finished, this fantastic cage, you get into it, inside, and you slam the door shut. And then you get the key and lock it. And then you take the key and you throw it as far as you can out into the desert. That's equating the realm of actuality with the realm of possibility. It's a self-constructed cage. But as we venture into the realm of possibility, which is within the larger domain of reality, sooner or later, we come out of the realm of possibility, the meditation session's over, and then we're faced with, with what is actual now. What is actual now. And as we may envision, as we have over the last three days, envision our own flourishing, and our loved ones, and other sentient beings, and imagining world peace, and that happiness that arises, the emotion that comes along with the loving-kindness, can be quite strong, very pleasant. And so, oh, may it be, may it be. And then we imagine it being so. Oh, how wonderful. Oh, may it be, may it be, may I be happy. May we all be happy. And then you open your eyes. Oh. <laughs> Back to the realm of actuality. And you open your eyes wide, then the words like ocean of suffering start taking on some meaning. I'm very glad you're not checking on the internet now. I do. It's part of my job here. It's an ocean of suffering. I watch, I, I mean, I go for the news pretty much. BBC, New York Times, things like that. It's almost all suffering. There's hardly anything that's not just an expression of suffering or the causes of suffering. The hatred here, the bigotry there, the genocide there. And interestingly enough, I think most of it actually, most of it is actually, I won't quite say man-made, but that's pretty close, human-made. 
Men tend to do it more. The man-made suffering in the world. Men tend to be more involved. I think women are too busy taking care of their children, raising another generation of boys to be able to make a lot lot of man-made suffering. But as soon as we attend, whether it's by way of the internet, getting the bigger picture, it's, it's our own little te- technological clairvoyance, you know. Clairvoyance is one of the benefits of achieving shamatha. To achieve shamatha, you can actually develop clairvoyance. not that difficult. Remote viewing is one of the perks. You might do that. Yeah. But until that, you have the internet. <laughs> it's technological remote viewing. It's clear. Right? Very useful. I like it. Clairaudience, clairvoyance. Watch the weather report, precognition. Very cool. And it's, and it's free. I mean, all you need is, you know, the use of a computer and the internet. There you go. And so as soon as, whether it's by way of the internet, whether it's by just by keeping one's eyes wide open as one engages in this reality, this perceptual reality, what's obvious is that there's an awful lot of suffering. And perhaps the most, the saddest part of the suffering, that is some aspect, some bandwidth of the suffering, is that it wasn't necessary. It wasn't necessary. When the tsunami hit Japan some months ago and tens of thousands of people lost their homes, so many lost their lives, one can say, relatively speaking, the suffering coming from that was necessary. You just lost your family. You just lost your home. You've lost all your possessions. How are you not going to feel sad about that? If you're an arhat, okay. But if you're not an arhat, sadness is going to come. And it's nobody's fault. I mean, nobody did the tsunami. And whether it's a hurricane, like the hurricane that just swept, swept, swept across the eastern United States, whether it's earthquakes, whether it's drought, whether it's famine, whether it's fire, that kind of suffering, until you become an arhat, until you gain very deep realization, that suffering is just going to be there. It comes. But so much, if we just look at the news, what's coming online from moment to moment. So much of the suffering coming because of human behavior. People doing things. They deliberately chose to do something that gave rise to misery. Sometimes for lots of people. It's amazing what the amount of damage even one person can do. It's amazing. It staggers imagination. So as we venture into the meditative cultivation of compassion, Compassion is attending to the realm of actuality. It balances out. It balances out for this from this balance voila. It balances out getting kind of caught up and carried away into la la land, loving kindness land, okay land, I guess, and just kind of ah oh, like that, and without even kind of opening your eyes and saying, you know, there's something really happening here. While you're enjoying your meditation, there's just an ocean of suffering going on, and it has causes. And the causes of much of the suffering, whether our own personal suffering, in a spousal relationship, in a family relationship, in a community, a nation, internationally, so much of the suffering comes because of people's behavior, what we are doing to each other, and what we are doing to the natural environment, and what we're doing to ourselves. And it's voluntary action. It's not an epileptic seizure. It's not a spasmodic jerk. It's deliberate, intentional, doing something. And then the result is suffering. Now that's odd. I mean, really, this is, this is weird. 
because all seven billion of the people on the planet, human beings on the planet, each one wants to be happy. So that should, that should make it easy. Right? Seven billion people on the same page, wanting the same thing. Right? This should just be utopia. Because we all want the same thing. We all want to be free of suffering, whether it's Gaddafi, whether it's George Bush, whether it's Obama, whether it's celebrities, athletes, peasants. All want to be free of suffering. All want to find happiness. So we can sing a chorus. We can say, we are the world. Seven billion people singing, we all want to be free of suffering. They would sing it much better than I did. <laughs> and we all want to find happiness. And, the, and we all want to find happiness. We all, all want to be free of suffering. We all want to find happiness. So we are the world. Imagine seven billion people singing that in chorus. Right? So it should just be fantastic here. This gorgeous planet. Unbelievable. It must be one of the prettiest ones in the universe. I mean, it's so pretty. Maybe they're prettier ones, but gosh, that would be a stretch. We got a really cute one. <laughs> a nice planet. I like it. This would be my choice. This would be my planet of choice. I guess it, it turned out to be. It's just so pretty. So, when we have we are the world, all wishing that we and those we love, and that pretty much covers everybody. Somebody loves Gaddafi. I presume his wife. His children, they must love him. I mean, I'm assuming. Probably somebody loves just about everybody. And then if we love ourselves and those our loved ones, and we all want to be free of suffering, then this should just be a great place. But the realm of actuality suggests otherwise. So how can that be? How can that be? That everybody wants to be happy, but in the midst of that, we make each other unhappy. And while wishing to be free of suffering, oh, we make each other suffer, and ourselves suffer. Shantideva, Shantideva, an 8th century great Indian sage, Bodhisattva, contemplative, sums this up with one verse, one of the most poignant in his classic text, The Guide to the Bodhisattva Way of Life. That is, while we seek to be free of suffering, we hasten after its very causes, and while we wish to find happiness, we destroy the causes of happiness as if they were our foe. And why? How is that possible? Are we all psychotic? Because that's what psychotic people would do. Well, the answer is yeah. <laughs> out of delusion. Out of delusion. We want to find happiness, but we don't see the causal linkage. What actually causes happiness? And then we take a cause, for, a cause of suffering, assume that's a cause of happiness, and say, go for it. <laughs> and likewise, we want to be free of suffering, but then instead of isolating and dispelling the causes of suffering, we want to be free of suffering, and then we pick up a cause of suffering and say, Go for it. And we suffer. How amazing. It's a simple delusion of not knowing causality. What actually gives rise to suffering? And what actually gives rise to well-being? So as we venture into this meditative cultivation of compassion, we'll come to this three times in this little series sequence. And, and the nature of compassion, of course, is the aspiration. It's like the, the left hand and the right hand of loving kindness and compassion. 
loving kindness being the aspiration, may we find happiness and the causes of happiness. The causes of happiness. That's where all the wisdom lies. Everybody wants the fruit. Not so many people recognize the cause. And likewise, compassion is the aspiration. May we be free of suffering and the causes of suffering. Everybody wants to be free of suffering. Cockroaches, scorpions, bats, presidents. Everybody wants that. But not so many really identify what are the true causes of suffering. Because our fingers and our eyes are all pointing outwards. I'm suffering. Who did it? Oh, you, did it. you did it. You did it. Somebody did it. Somebody, something that I can look at. I know I'm suffering. That's coming from within. And who did it? And my eyes are little beady eyes. Looking. Did it. Something must be causing it that I can see. And what I see is outside. Well, anybody can do that. It requires no wisdom. To see what's coming from inside that is the true cause of suffering, that takes some wisdom. So compassion is this aspiration. May we be free of suffering and its causes. So in these three, threefold sequence, we'll go from coarse to subtle. We'll go from the manifest to the more hidden, the easy to the more difficult. First dimension of suffering that all sentient beings can recognize and don't want is simply called blatant suffering or the suffering of suffering. It hurts. It's physical pain. It's mental pain. The whole bandwidth of pain from boredom to anguish, from a slight itch to searing agony, physical agony. The whole bandwidth. But it doesn't feel good and we don't like it. That domain of suffering, that bandwidth of suffering, manifest. Everybody can identify it and nobody wants it. We'll be focusing in that realm. Now, the object of compassion is sentient beings. It's not suffering. And this is why the articulation, the expression of compassion is, may all sentient beings be free of suffering. We're attending to sentient beings and wishing that sentient beings, obviously including ourselves, may be free of suffering, free of the causes of suffering. And we venture in through the shallow end of the pool, attending to that which is Everybody can recognize and nobody wants. But not everybody recognizes what are the true causes of blatant suffering, physical and mental. So we arouse this compassion. May we all be free of blatant suffering and its causes. Well, in order for compassion really to arise, this aspiration, bear in mind, is not a feeling. Very importantly, compassion is not just an emotion like sadness or sympathy, empathy, grief. It's not. If that's all it is, it's useless. It's useless. Right. Compassion's an aspiration. And it comes with a feeling, just like loving kindness is an aspiration. And it comes with a feeling, but it's not the feeling. But to arouse the aspiration, which may actually turn into a motivation, that we may all be free of suffering, and the causes of suffering. There has to be some sense that it's possible. Only a fool, only a fool would desire something that he or she knows is impossible. Why bother? That's just an exercise in frustration, a aggravation, disappointment, maybe depression. If you're wishing for something that's impossible, 
all the more if you're wishing for something you know is impossible. That's a fool's errand. Life is too short, I think, really. It's too short for that. It's a waste of time. So if compassion is to arise, may we be free of suffering and the causes of suffering, of this level, this blatant suffering. We must see that there's some possibility of freedom, that such freedom from suffering and its causes really is possible. And so as we venture in now very soon into this practice, what I'd invite you to do is to attend to sentient beings, starting with yourself and then extending outwards, With the aspiration, may we be free of suffering and specifically blatant suffering, the kind that hurts, mental, physical, both. But now in terms of the causes, because again, compassion is wise. It's not just may we be free of suffering. May we be free of suffering and its causes. What I would suggest for this first session is that as we attend to the causes, we don't focus so much on tsunami and natural calamities what even the Dalai Lama sometimes calls acts of God, as he speaks to his, as he speaks to his Christian brothers and sisters. <laughs> Your God did it, not ours. <laughs> not so much focusing on that, although that's very important too. And there is actually the possibility of freedom from suffering from that. But for the focus here for this session, I'd really like to invite you to focus on sentient beings who are suffering because of actions, because of their own actions. We have so little control over other people's behavior, right? So little control, almost none. Almost none. Maybe that's why some people, many people like being parents. Parents at least have control over somebody's behavior. <laughs> little tiny baby, you're so much bigger. Okay, I got you covered, you know. <laughs> Until they hit adolescence, then oh, oh, oh. <laughs> lost control, <laughs> hopeless. Focusing on the, those of us who suffer because of our own behavior. So little we can do to control the behavior of others. So much we can do to control our own behavior. And if we can identify which forms of behavior actually give rise to suffering, to misery, to blatant suffering, sorrow and pain for ourselves and others, our own behavior giving rise to that suffering, we can identify it. Now we are using wisdom. Here's the suffering and none of us wanted. And here's the suffering that we brought about through our own behavior. May we be free. You can see light at the end of the tunnel there. Because if it's our own behavior, there's a possibility of stopping it. And likewise, as we attend to others, we can't control them, but perhaps we can shed some light for them, show them the way. In the Buddha Dhamma, it said the greatest gift you can give to another person, the greatest possible gift, is not all of Warren Buffett's 50 billion or whatever he has. It's not great yachts. It's not fantastic reputation, celebration. It's not the adoration and love of other people. The greatest gift that any human being can give to another person. At least this is the Buddhist view. It's Dharma. It's Dharma. It's the wisdom showing what is the path to genuine happiness. What are the causes of suffering and how can we alleviate them?
So let's attend to ourselves and others. Arouse the yearning. May we be free of blatant suffering and the actions that give rise to it. Those actions that give rise to suffering for ourselves and others, those are called unethical, unwholesome, non-virtuous. Not because God said so, not because Buddha said so, not because it's in some Buddhist list of ten non-virtues or whatever. Those lists are all fine. I'm not denigrating lists. Buddha doesn't have so many lists. I'd be in trouble if I did. But simply identifying with wisdom, not just memorization, what are the modes of behavior that gives rise to suffering, to discourse, to discord, to distress, to misery, to pain for ourselves and others. Identifying those in ourselves, identifying those in others, because after all, even though people, we are creatures of habit, if we can share the light of Dharma to others and show them the way, Perhaps it's not so much, it's not controlling. That's not what Dharma teachers do. Not, Dharma teachers are not, I mean, I think at least my Dharma teachers are not into controlling. They're into assisting, helping, shedding light. But there's some possibility. Maybe people can see, oh, I was doing that and it gave rise to so much suffering. I don't need to do that anymore. And they can be free. So entry level to compassion and the smooth transition from loving-kindness to compassion. So meaningful to move from the realm of actuality into the realm of possibility as you make the great expedition of loving-kindness. And then you emerge from that and you confront the realm of actuality, the ocean of suffering, how much misery there is in the world, not only among human beings, animals and so on. How much suffering is created because we are treating each other in injurious ways, out of delusion? Each one wanting to be happy and be free of suffering. And then compounding suffering and banishing happiness. Attending to that actuality, it's almost like a dolphin that comes up and down. You know, breaks through and up and down. We immerse ourselves into the realm of actuality. That's where we're coming from. How was your day? What's your life been like? Right? So the only thing we've immersed into this realm of actuality. But then, like these wonderful dolphins we see, you know, then you come, spring up into the bright air, the open, vast space, and you see the realm of actuality, of possibility. You make the expedition into loving kindness. And then you immerse yourself back into the ocean of actuality as you attend to what is reality. And that arouses, as we attend to the suffering of ourselves and others, arouses compassion. But we don't sink we don't drown. That's called the near enemy, the false facsimile of compassion, right? Just falling into grief. It's like the dolphin going down and just never coming up again. Gone. Drowned in the realm of actuality with no air. So we have to come up again. And that's what compassion is. We attend to the compassion is aroused by, it's catalyzed by, attending to the actuality of our own and other suffering. And then, like the dolphin, we break the waves, come up into the bright, open, blue sky and envision the possibility. May there be freedom. May we be free. Envision that. Attend to it. Aspire for it. And that's cultivation of compassion. Something like that. I don't know. I don't know much about compassion, really. But I've heard really good teachings. So I'm 
I'm really good. I'm a very smart parrot. I'm a very good parrot. More articulate than most parrots. That's what you get for a PhD. A lot of words. So, please find a comfortable position. an act of kindness for yourself. Gently let your awareness descend into the body, this quiet, non-conceptual space. Permeate that space. And settle your body in its natural state, relaxed, still, and vigilant. Settle your respiration in its natural flow. And as an act of kindness to yourself, allow yourself the freedom, just for the little while, to set aside your concerns about the past and the future, all self-centered concerns. And let your awareness come to rest in stillness in the present moment. (coughs) Clearly illuminating the sensations of the breath throughout the body.
then arouse the luminous quality of your awareness. Shedding the light of your awareness upon your own past, drawing from your memory. And looking back in your own personal history, attend closely to the suffering you've experienced in body and mind. especially to mental suffering of disappointment, despair, frustration, sadness, grief, the broad bandwidth of mental suffering to which you've been vulnerable in the past and in all likelihood are vulnerable still in the present. attend with wisdom, with the eyes of wisdom. Can you trace the causes as you attend to one episode, one experience of suffering after another, especially of mental suffering? Can you trace this back to your own behavior where you have sown the causes, sown the seeds, the seeds, and you have reaped the harvest? While wishing for happiness, you have sown the seeds of suffering. each out-breath, or rather with each in-breath, arouse the yearning, may I be free of such suffering and its causes. The suffering being unnecessary, withdraw the cause, withdraw the, the injurious behavior and the resultant suffering is dispelled. Arouse the compassionate yearning, may be free of all blatant suffering. And from the modes of behavior of body, speech, and mind, 
that lead to such suffering. May I be wise and free. With each in-breath, imagine becoming free. Imagine being free. Turn your, your awareness outwards to someone, to some person, or it could be a community of people, but to someone who now is suffering, blatant suffering, the suffering of fear, of mental anguish, of grief. And attend especially to someone who is suffering was caused by their own behavior or the behavior of others. And attend closely, knowing with wisdom this person's wish for freedom from suffering is every bit as real and every bit as important as your own.
each in-breath arouse a yearning. May you, like myself, be free. Free of blatant suffering and its underlying causes. Each in-breath, imagine, imagine freedom. Imagine the relief from the suffering as well as its underlying causes, the true causes. your attention rove to another individual, to be a region of the globe where there's so much suffering, unnecessary suffering because it is man-made. Attend closely to those who are suffering. Let the reality become real for you because they are attending closely. With each in-breath arouse the same yearning, this aspiration, may you be free of suffering and its underlying causes.
your attention rove. See who comes to mind. And attend closely. Attend especially closely to those who are suffering because of the actions that are expressions of anger, hatred, hostility, ill will, cruelty. So much unnecessary suffering in the world arising from this flame of anger and manifesting in hateful behavior. be free of suffering that arises from hateful behavior and be free of the underlying cause of hatred itself. Let the field of your awareness expand in all directions, embracing all sentient beings, whoever comes to mind. With the yearning, may we all be free of suffering and the actions that give rise to suffering, especially those motivated by anger and hatred. May we be free
release all appearances and objects of the mind. Release all aspirations. Let your awareness come to rest in its own nature. And rest in that sheer luminosity, the sheer cognizance of your own awareness. Doing nothing. Simply being aware of being aware. some mail. So I'll just read this. It is said that from stage four, within nine stages to Ashamata, the chosen object of practice, or objects of practice, are always inside the circle of area of mindfulness. In the sense that, yeah, stage four, you're no longer prone, prone to coarse excitation, which means for the duration of the session, it has to be a reasonable duration, it doesn't go on for 10 hours, but half an hour, 45 minutes, you never, you're like that rider on the bucking bronco, you're always in contact. You don't entirely lose it and wind up in midair. Right? So that's true. So it's within, the, so it's a nice phrase, within the circle of one's mindfulness. And the difference between stage five and six, oh, you're really going advanced. You're definitely venturing into the realm of possibility. <laughs> the difference between stage five and six is that, is that it, at stage five, the practice, the practice object still is more at the periphery, at the periphery of the circle. I'm not so sure about that. That is to say that... I, oh, Mike, I see. Okay, I, I see what you mean. Yes, that is... Your mind is largely dominated by some medium excitation, and in the process of that, you, what your intended object, the object of mindfulness, gets shoved off. It gets kind of like nudged off to the side. So that's, that's quite true. Or somewhat more at the periphery of the circle, whereas it is located in the center of one's mindfulness at stage six. So... It is true that when you are free from medium excitation, then even though, so what's in the center of your attention for a sustained period is your object of mindfulness and the subtle excitation, like flies buzzing around your head, 
the noise, static, is there, but still you're primarily focused, quite centered on the meditative object. So referring to settling the mind in a natural state. So, so there's some background, kind of the map of shamatha, and now we come back to a specific practice, settling the mind in its natural state. Since the object here is the space of the mind and its contents. Good, you got that one right. That is the correct answer. Good. Since the object here is the space of the mind and its contents, does center at stage four and five refer to the objects of other sensory domains, seeing and so forth? No, of course not. No, the center is always the object of mindfulness. So if you're settling the mind in its natural state, the center is the space of the mind and whatever arises within it. That's the center all the way through until you achieve yamata. And anything coming by way of the five senses, five physical senses, well, that, that's not the object of mindfulness. Okay? If it becomes center, that is, if your attention is diverted and you are actually f- focusing on some sound and you've forgotten, disengaged from the space of the mind and its contents, then that's coarse excitation. If some sound catches your attention and you're primarily focusing that, but you haven't quite lost touch with what's happening in the space of the mind, that's medium excitation. If the center of your attention, that your attention is really focused right there, it's quite rather unified on the space of the mind and its contents, and you're also hearing a sound at the same time, then that's subtle excitation. Does this shift from five to six have something to do with the experience, what is called unity of movement and stillness? Good, good. So very well well informed question. The unity of, so let's go there, the unity of stillness, the, the unity, simultaneity, unification of stillness and motion. And so in one of the one-on-one meetings today, the, this ca- the question came up. And that is, if some thought comes up, is it okay to kind of trace it back to its source? Kind of like, whoa. Yeah. Oh, like that. That's motion. That's grasping. You're now following, you're moving, you're in motion. Why does awareness move? Because awareness does move. Grasping. It's just that simple. That's why awareness moves. coming out like a, like a fishing line, Whew. catches, hooks, moves. <coughs> this cultivation of awareness without grasping entails a stillness of your awareness, even while thoughts, images, memories, fantasies, and so forth, they come, they introduce themselves, they bow, they perform their roles, and they disappear off stage. You're like somebody in the audience who's just in samadhi, just focus, totally still, totally non-reactive. In other words, you would be an awful audience person. <laughs> you know, it's Meryl Streep, it's you know, one of the greatest actors in the world. That'd be a bit tough, tough on the actors, to have everybody settling their minds in a natural state <laughs> <laughs> while a superb play is going on. Because <laughs> they want you to Get into the mood, right? Get into the drama. Care about, care about the figures on the stage. Hope for this and fear that. 
and be saddened by this and rejoicing at that. That's what a good play is supposed to do, right? Get the mind in motion. So the stillness is the stillness of non-grasping. Being totally attentive and again, again, not recoil, not withdrawal, not dissociation, total presence. But presence with no hooks. The presence of space such that thoughts come and go. But your awareness is simply still, even in the midst of the movements of the mind. And the two are occurring simultaneously. So your awareness is not just still in between bouts or in between acts. You know, oh, good, nothing's happening. Oops, something's happening. Like that. <laughs> that while things are happening, your awareness is still. Still like space. So a very nice aphorism you might want to remember because it's so easy. When you're doing this practice, let your body be still like a mountain, your awareness still like space. And if you can maintain that, even while the thoughts, memories, and even emotions and desires are coming and going, coming and going, well, whether you're on stage five, whether you're on stage two, or stage nine, or wherever you are, that's the unification, the union, the simultaneity of stillness and motion. So, good. That's that. So it's good, really, to focus on content. This is actually a quite important point. Um, I spent six months in very intense solitude, quite a few years ago, up in the desert, doing just that practice we did this morning. And just once in a while, every three or four weeks, I'd hop in a pickup truck and drive down to the nearest town 20 minutes a day, 20 minutes drive away to a public telephone that was quite isolated. There's, hardly, there's nobody there. It's on the back of some shop. And I'd phone up my, my guru, Gatu Ramachi, with my questions. And so, I'm doing this practice, just exactly this one this morning. He taught it to me in a way that's so inspiring, I actually wanted to do it. And as I was discussing my practice with him, trying to get greater clarity, the question, I, I raised some question about stage four. Stage four. Now, Gyatranabuch is he's a tulku. So he's been trained as a monk, as a lama, scholar, a contemplative since he's a baby, practically. And so I asked Gyatranabuch, oh, such and such a question about stage four. And his answer was, what's stage four? <laughs> <laughs> now, it would be quite ridiculous to think he hadn't heard about that one. What he wanted me to do was put the markers behind. And when you're doing the practice, just do the practice. Don't think about maps. Don't think about stages. Don't think about accomplishing or not accomplishing, about succeeding or failing. When you're doing the practice, just do the practice. In between sessions, when you have a bit of leisure, you might check out the map just to see whether it's helpful. What comes up? What comes up at such a certain stage? Look at it casually and then put it away. Just come back to the practice. Important not to get, how do you say, to mistake the map for the territory. So here's a good practical question. How can I make best use of our personal interviews? I always start to obsess before an interview with a teacher. Do I tell you what or how I'm practicing? Do you ask me questions? Well, what I really want you to do is come and tell me you've just simply already achieved shamatha. That's, <laughs> that's what I want to hear. 
But of course, if you're lying, then it's not so fun. Not much fun. Um, no, it's a very good question, and I wa- actually wanted to raise it altogether. Um, they're utterly unstructured. That is, I have no list of questions. I have no format to fit in. It's 15 minutes when each time I'll do my very best to give you my whole attention for all 15 minutes uh, with the motivation of trying to assist you in realization of your aspirations. And since you came here for a Shamatha retreat, and the four, for the four immeasurables retreat, I'm going to assume that that's fairly central, or at least very important to your aspiration, because that's where I might be able to help a little bit. right? And so what to do during these times we have together? Actually, having done this quite a few times, starting four years ago in the Shamatha project, where we had three-month retreats, uh, and it was the same thing, 15 minutes, once a week, I actually found that was enough. It really... we. we Generally, it didn't find, oh, 50 minutes is over. Gosh, what do we do? No, generally it was wind, wound up being enough, given the fact that we also had this one hour collectively. So that balance seemed, seemed to work pretty well. So what I would suggest you do for the 15 minutes is ask questions that are really immediately relevant to your own practice. If you have more generic questions, why not raise them here? And then I give one response and 40 people here, maybe you get some benefit. Right? So let it be very personal. Now, I, I'm, I'm not a type of, uh, what do you call it? Nosy person. That's not, one of, that's not one of my faults. I have many faults, but being nosy, wanting to poke into other people's business and probe into their private affairs, that's not, that's not, that's not one of my problems. And so that's never the issue. But insofar as you'd like to share what's really going on in your practice from week to week, so that I can attend closely, try to help you get through blockages that might come up, imbalances that might come up, emotions, eruptions of the mind that might come up, dealing with things in the environment that might come up, or clarifying simply the nature of the practice itself that you, you know, you've really encountered through your own experience. So more theoretical questions, more conceptual, more abstract questions, insofar as they're relevant, I think that would be good for this, for the group, group meetings. But let the one-on-one be up close and personal, as they say, very much about your practice. And that can include exercise. It can include not only what you're doing formally on the cushion, but the context for it as well. Okay? So, that's that. And, of course, for this week we've now had three days, three days of interviews. And so in the beginning, of course, it's we're just kind of getting to know each other a little bit. And during three, through these, I really get to know your name, because I really am not that great about attaching names to bodies. I'm just that's not one of my skills. I hear a name, and there's, there's a body, there's a name. It's kind of like Schmibble, doodle, frapple, giggle, noddle, piddle doodle, you know, whatever. You know. But when I sit down with you and I know your name and I see it's not just a body, I mean, I don't really think you're just bodies, but I get a little bit of more of a three dimensional view, you know, uh, then I can, then the names tend to stick. Then the names tend to stick more. Okay, so something like that. Looks like there's one more. Oh. So you spoke of the great and unproductive effort you made in your first Shamatha retreat. I sure did. I refer to it often. My guess is, however, that you learned a great deal about yourself and the practice and the process of such striving. You're right. You're right, but I'll read, you're correct in that. It was very, really a learning experience. To make a really flamboyant error is a very steep learning curve. Yeah. 
So I did that. So I, too, want to feel free to make my own mistakes. Don't worry. (laughs) Of all the things that might keep you up at night, that's not one of them. (laughs) It'll happen. You can count on it. You can put money in the bank on that one. (laughs) So I, too, I, too, want to make mistakes. (laughs) And for instance, from making too much or too little effort. Very good point. Very good point. How do we know what is just right? There's a very nice mapping of what are called the three higher trainings, ethics, samadhi, and wisdom, and the Eightfold Noble Path, and see how they map onto each other. Very useful. It's found, I think, only in one Pali Sutta. I'm not sure how broadly it's known, but I read it, and whoa, when I read it, it really rang a bell. That's good. That's really useful. And so I'll give this map very briefly. The first higher training, this is the structure of the whole path. Mahayana, Vajrayana, Theravada, Zen, Chan, whatever it is. The foundation is ethics. That's the first training. If you don't have that, you don't have Buddhism. You don't have a path. And so ethics, and among the Eightfold Noble Path, right speech, right action, right livelihood. Right means authentic, in accordance with reality. Not injurious. Right? Right action, what we do with our bodies. Right speech, clear. Right livelihood, how do we make a living? Right? So those, that's the mapping out of the Eightfold Noble Path. There's three of them. They map onto ethics. And then let's go to the higher training in samadhi. The higher training in samadhi is not just single-pointed attention. Samadhi as a mental factor is single-pointed attention. It's simple. It's neat. It's, you can define it really easily. You're, you're focused. But the higher training in samadhi is much, much larger than that. The higher training in samadhi is all about developing exquisite mental balance. Extraordinary mental health. And that's not just cognitive, but all of the four immeasurables, loving kindness and so forth, they all fit into the higher training in samadhi. Okay? Cultivation of renunciation, bodhicitta, and so forth. Fit into the higher training of samadhi. So it's very large. It's designed to make the mind extraordinarily, extraordinarily balanced, refined, serviceable, open, healthy. So that when that very same mind is applied to investigating the nature of reality, you have a mind that's really healthy, that works, that is not dysfunctional. Extraordinary balance. And then in terms of the Eightfold Noble Path, it's effort, it's samadhi, and it's mindfulness. Right effort, right samadhi, right mindfulness. Those three. They fit into the category. So a lot of people nowadays make a great big mistake. Equating mindfulness with vipassana. That's silly. Gosh, it's ignorant. I mean, all you need to do is read a couple of pages and you should know that's not true. Mindfulness is crucial for ethics. Mindfulness is crucial for samadhi. Mindfulness is crucial for wisdom. To equate mindfulness with wisdom, mindfulness with vipassana, is like, oh, you never even got out of kindergarten. Especially if you equate mindfulness with bare attention and you think that's all the vipassana is. Well, that's preschool. That's really preschool. One can simply say uninformed. But it's easy to understand. That's generally true of things in preschool. 
So we need to kind of grow up, not keep it at that level. So mindfulness, this right mindfulness out of the Eightfold Noble Path is not up there in wisdom, which is directly corresponding to Vipassana. Mindfulness, where is it placed among the three trainings? It's placed in Samadhi, because that's where you're really cultivating it. So those three, Samadhi, effort, and then mindfulness. And so between the two, the Samadhi and the effort. The effort is, we know what it's like, right? It's this kind of arousal. It's something coming up, really applying something, striving. It's almost like a prelude. It's almost like flexing a muscle. Like that. And then there's samadhi, and the samadhi is simply the unification. This is now right samadhi. Right samadhi. Right unification of mind. Right focus. Right composure. Right collectedness of attention. That's where you're just there. So on the one hand, to be striving. On the other hand, to be there. Those are quite different. One is almost like the avenue, the other one's almost like the destination. Right? You strive in order to become focused. Once you're focused, then you're focused. Right? And so we have these two. It's something of a balance, something of a tension. Striving on the one hand and just being there, unified, present, totally focused on the other. Well, if you're striving too much, it's just going to agitate the mind and exhaust you. Whereas if you're just resting in the unification, you can slip into dullness, complacency. So there needs to be a a balance there between the effort and the actual unification of the mind. And how do you balance those two? It's with mindfulness. Mindfulness is the balancing, the balancer between those two. It's remembering. Mindfulness is remembering. And it's not just being mindful of something in the present moment. Very useful, like in mindfulness of breathing. Mindfulness of what is arising in the space of the mind right now. That is mindfulness. What we practiced this morning, that was mindfulness. But mindfulness is not just being aware. This is, again, keeping mindfulness in preschool, like pre-kindergarten, to think mindfulness is only being aware of something in the present moment. That's good. But come on. That's not the Buddhist view. It's not the Buddhist view in any school. To think mindfulness is equivalent to being just aware in the present moment. Mindfulness has the primary connotation of recollection, of retaining, of bearing in mind. So when you're practicing settling the mind in this natural state, what are you applying your mindfulness to? Space of the mind and whatever arises within it. At the same time, if you're not remembering what the instructions are, if you're not remember how if you're not remembering how to do the practice, if you're not remembering what is the role of mindfulness, what's the role of introspection? if you're not remembering what is distraction, what is laxity, and if you're not remembering how do you respond to laxity and how do you respond to excitation, if you're not remembering those, you're not doing the practice. Because you're not remembering what the practice was. Right? So mindfulness is recalling, it's bearing in mind. What are the instructions? What am I doing here? What's the point? Right? So... With that in mind, it becomes clear as you're recollecting, not only being aware of what's arising in the space of the mind right now, but recollecting what's the nature of this practice, what's the method, what are the remedies, what is the role of introspection, and so forth. 
as you're bringing that full-fledged three-dimensional mindfulness to mind. Retrospective mindfulness, recalling the teachings, present-centered mindfulness, being aware of what's arising right now in the immediacy of the present moment, in the space of the mind, but also prospective mindfulness. And that is, as you're resting there, already remembering, should it occur in the future, that my mind becomes distracted. This is what I will do. Maybe I'll never become distracted again, in which case, no problem. You know? But if in the future my mind, I do lose my mind again, what do I do? Apply introspection, recognize it as swiftly as possible, release. And so in anticipation, it's a quiet, subliminal anticipation, a, a quiet recollection of knowing what to do in the future should this happen. Should I become spaced out, nebulous, dull? What do I do then? Now you remember, you arouse your attention and you focus. Right? So this flow of mindfulness is rich, it's three-dimensional. Recalling relevant information from the past and implementing it in the present moment. It's aware that's arising in the present moment, but it's also retaining, remembering what to do in the future should this happen and not let it just catch you by surprise. Right? So in that way, then, mindfulness is balancing the effort on the one hand and the samadhi on the other. Mindfulness leads to samadhi. Again, one of the most foolish things I've said is that somehow samadhi is incompatible with mindfulness. Oh, really, quite foolish. As if samadhi has to be tunnel-visioned. It's what the Hindus do. You know, it's just all single-pointedly. Whereas mindfulness is open, it's free, it's spacious. Born free. That's a very cute, ridiculous notion. The two are in the same nest. Effort, samadhi, mindfulness, all within the framework of right samadhi. Oh, excuse me, higher training in samadhi. Higher training in samadhi. So, for example, anapanasati samadhi. The samadhi that comes by way of sati of anapana. The samadhi, the unification of the mind, the composure, the focus of the mind that's brought about by way of mindfulness of the in and out breathing. Anapanasati samadhi. Anybody who's even heard that phrase should know that it's completely impossible in Buddhism to say that samadhi and mindfulness are incompatible. It's worth absurd. It is a samadhi by way of mindfulness of breathing. So that's that. That's where the balance comes in. So, this is still a response to the question. And that is how to know whether you're making too much or too little effort. Well, if a theme that I'll come back to probably re repeatedly and in so many contexts is finding middle way finding the middle way which is frankly another word for balance mental balance is a middle way attentional balance free of the extremes of laxity and excitation is right in the middle stable and clear right? and so how much effort too slack then you fall into laxity too strong you fall into excitation but now it's a moving target. This is very important. It's a moving target. It's not getting the answer right on Tuesday and holding on to that answer through Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, and so forth. Just remembering what you did earlier. Right? 
And that is from moment to moment, especially as you start to really mature, to develop, to grow along the path of shamatha. And your mind does become more refined, stability is enhanced, gradually the vividness is enhanced, then the amount of effort, as you know, at least from memory, the large bonfire, big fire, medium fire, small fire, match, no fire at all, the amount of effort gradually subsides down to zero when you get up to stage nine. And so how much effort is appropriate? How much effort is the middle way? Not too much, not too little. Well, it's one answer in stage four, it's another answer in stage three, another answer in stage six, and it's all a gradient. Right? It's all a smooth, smooth transition. And that means, oh, I'm remembering so vividly right now, the first time I ever translated for His Holiness Dalai Lama. It's, it's terrifying, frankly. <laughs> I was 29, and His Holiness was speaking before 5,000 people in Switzerland, and many of them were Tibetans who were bilingual. So they knew if I made it, they would know exactly if I made any mistake. And His Holiness probably would too. And he speaks very quickly. I was not at ease. I was not feeling loose at that time. But I remember so clearly this one phrase he said, Dani Dagigun. Dani Dagigun. You are your own master. You are your own master. Well, that's true in so many cases. And here in Shamatha, you have to be your own teacher. For a little while, we have some time where I'm pretending to be in the role of teacher. You're taking on the guise of being students. It's very transient. As soon as we step out the door, then I'm just, guy, I'm just a guy going out to get a meal. That's <laughs> it. One more guy getting some dinner. Nothing special. Right? And as soon as you step out the door, as soon as you step out the door, you're your own teacher. When you're on the cushion, you're, you, you are your own teacher. It is you, up to you, and really only you, to be able to attend closely from moment to moment, to see for yourself how much is too much, how much is too little. Now let that be an ongoing quest. The quest for the middle way that gets narrower and narrower. So I believe that's how I might better access the quality of my intentions, I think, whether they are wholesome, yes, very true. Whether they are wholesome or driven by afflictions and how I might open to my own intuitive awareness. Very good point. Excellent. How to find the balance between receiving appropriate instruction and the Buddhist directive, do not, do not, yeah, do not do it because I say it. Do it because it works. Yeah, it's a nice paraphrase. So how do you find the balance between doing the expression, instructions and checking out for yourself? Well, that's what we're here for. Um, Format-wise, in terms of just sheer logistics, what I've settled on, and I don't see any reason to shift for the time being, is just two hours a day all together. Just two hours a day. A small fraction, really. Travel all this way in only two hours. You know, that's a movie. <laughs> it's just a movie. <laughs> you flew all the way to Phuket for a movie? One movie a day, only six days a week? You don't even get a movie on Sunday. You know? And so that's really small time, really small period. But this means the rest of the time, you are your own master. So for this time when I'm giving guided meditations, hopefully they're useful, then you're taking it in. Maybe there's a little bit of new information once in a while. If you've listened to a lot of podcasts, maybe not. But, you know, so there it is, some new information. Hopefully, 
I mean, I try, doing my best, I think. When I'm giving a little talk, or we have a discussion like this, provide something, hopefully useful. Besides that, it's all assimilation. Besides that, you're all... I, won't say you're, I won't, will not say you're all on your own, because you're not. I'm here to help you 24 hours a day. We are here to help each other, so we're not on our own. But in the privacy of your room, on your own cushion, well, you are your own master. And so that's the time when you really, you're setting out on your own expedition, you're setting out your own research. And this is something I've not seen yet, not yet seen make its way into scientific studies of meditation. I hope it will not be too long. And that is scientists themselves with all of their wonderful array of expertise, years of training as psychologists, as neuroscientists, what have you. So they're coming in as the professionals. And then they call in the meditators. And thus far, it's pretty much the professionals studying the meditators and the meditators are subjects. We study their brain waves, study fMRI, we study their blood chemistry, give them questionnaires, give them some behavioral measures. And then the scientist says, thank you very much, you can, you can go now. <laughs> and now we professionals will get back to work and we're going to analyze our data and then we'll publish our paper and you'll, your names will not appear. But thanks, thanks a million. And then all the scientists' names appear on the papers of what they've discovered. And it never even raises the question whether the meditators discovered anything at all. Even if they've meditated for 40,000 hours, like some of these monks from Bhutan or Tibet, it doesn't even raise the question of whether they discovered anything. But the scientists learn a lot about their brainwaves. Lots of gamma. Love gamma. Gamma, gamma, gamma. Can't get enough of gamma. Love gamma. What does it mean? Don't really know, but got lots of gamma. They like gamma. So they really learn something. Meditators got a lot of gamma. What it means, not so clear. In the meantime, did the yogis over 40,000 hours, did they learn anything? Well, we don't even know their names. We don't even know what they did. They just did something for 40,000 hours that somebody called meditation. So, and I'm not referring to, you know, some other site. I've engaged in a lot of that kind of research myself. So far, that's pretty much it. I have not yet seen a single scientific paper that lists some of the yogis by name and says, this is what they discovered, that we didn't discover by doing questionnaires, by studying their brains, by studying their behavior. We learned a lot this way. Some of it, they can't know. Like, what happens to your blood chemistry? What happens to your cortisol? What happens to your frontal cortex? Yogis probably won't know. So, I'm not ridiculing the scientific approach at all. It has its strengths. And some of those strengths you don't get from meditation, by and large. But, let's get real here. If you're observing your mind for, you know, a thousand hours, 10, 20, 30, 40,000 hours, you might actually learn something through direct observation that you don't get by observing the brain or behavior or giving questionnaires. And so I think, to my mind, this is just a proposal, is an advance in the scientific study of meditation. We'll have the, the papers co-authored not only by a yogi here or there who's helping the scientists do their work, but citing the yogis doing their work of what did they discover and perhaps uniquely discover. And that would be very three-dimensional. That would be very full. So that hasn't happened yet, but I don't see why it shouldn't.
But what actual discoveries do you make about the nature of the mind, the nature of happiness and the causes of happiness, the nature of suffering and the causes of suffering? Do you make any discoveries? When you're watching the mind for five, six, eight hours a day, settling the mind in its natural state, any discoveries coming up? Well, it's what meditation is for. To learn something. Learn something transformative. So, who knows? Maybe it happens. Take a break. I'll see you tomorrow morning.